Father, thank you for all the beauty of this day. And not all of it just from creation. The beauty of your presence among your people, Father. and The beauty of fellowship. The beauty of love. The opportunity to serve. The beauty of the Gospel as it changes lives. We're thankful for this beauty that we get to see every day. And we pray that that beauty erupt in our life in greater degrees and in greater profundity each day as well, Father. We, we want to be so glorious in Your sight. But we know that it's not within ourselves to do it. And for, for this and to this end, we're thankful for Your Spirit, for Your Word, for Your presence. And for the blessings, Father, that, that come to us each day that, that, that motivate us to live a life that is worthy of all of this grace that has come into our life. And not only that, to share it with those around us. Thank You for this day, Father. Thank You for this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, have. It seems that I have had a dog all my life. And as a, 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 a dog guy, uh, collected some quotes about dogs that, uh, that I think are pretty profound. Uh, one is from Ben Williams, and he says, there is no psychiatrist in the world like a puppy licking your face. Dave Barry, the, uh, the, uh, the humorist, says, you can say any foolish thing to a dog, and the dog will give you a look that says, Wow, you're right. I would never have thought of that. <laughs> I think this is, uh, is attributed to, um, uh, to an unknown. It's an, an anonymous. I think it's actually a, a quote from Mark Twain that says, My goal in life is to be as good of a person as my dog already thinks I am. Andy Rooney, uh, kind of a, a humorous curmudgeon, uh, says the average dog is a nicer person than the average person, which kind of sounds like Andy Rooney, doesn't it? Robert Benchley, a dog teaches a boy fidelity, teaches a boy perseverance, and to turn around three times before lying down. <laughs> and then Rita Rudner says, I wonder if other dogs think poodles are members of a weird religious cult. One of the great benefits of having a dog is the increased awareness that I am not one. Our dog, Lonnie, is a wonderful dog. This is uh, on the day that we adopted her uh, about two and a half years ago. She is kind, and she is uh, patient, and she is very loving, and she is funny, and sometimes even quirky, and she's pretty laid back. But she loves being with us. And she's just this wonderful old dog. And then, you know, you think about it. There are times when this dog tries to talk to me. And I can talk to this dog. And that dog seems to understand it. understands hand signals. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're amazed by this dog. And all of a sudden, it realizes you realize that she's just a dog. Nothing less and nothing more. She does not know or reason or feel or judge like I do or Ellen does. She does not prize anything because she understands its true worth. Lonnie came to us from Bastrop, but she does not know that at all. She doesn't reflect and meditate on her identity and wonder who she is and what it means ultimately in God's scheme of things to be a German shepherd. 
And even though she has grown adept at reading the signs that a walk is in her future, all I have to do is put on shorts and she gets happy. Lonnie doesn't know why she's here and she doesn't know where she's going. And yet I look at her and she is a wonder. And she can evoke some pretty amazing affection from our family. But she is not a Mark or an Ellen or a Jessica or a Jordan created in the image of God. And the more you know about dogs, the more you are amazed at your own humanity. To be alive as a human being with indescribable mysteries at every turn. And to have in front of us an eternal destiny of spectacular glory or inexpressible horror is a weight that can either press you down with fear and trembling or bear you up in any circumstance with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Whether it does one or the other depends greatly on whether you know the answer to the big basic human questions or not. Who are you? And from whom did you get that identity? What are you here for? No dog, no squirrel, no chicken, no catfish? Well, maybe a cat. Catfish are kind of smart. Ever lost one night's sleep pondering these questions? Only humans, really, when you get right down to it, would ever ask these kinds of questions. Only humans stress ourselves and kill ourselves and kill others when we don't get true and satisfying answers to those kinds of questions. Now, in that text tonight that David read for us, I think we get some crystal clear answers to the questions, who am I and from whom did I get this identity? I want to read again verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. I think it is an absolutely glorious passage in the New Testament. And Peter is writing to people who understand that they're exiles in the world. And probably wondering really who they are in the scheme of power and empire in the world. And to these people, he says, you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. That first question, who are you, is answered at a couple of different levels in this text. Remember again that Peter is writing to disciples of Jesus, to to Christian disciples. And this is who you are if you are a child of God. And Peter gives about five ways of describing our identity by answering the question, who are you? Number one, he says, you, in verse 9, are a chosen race. And this is not an original thought with Peter. Uh, Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah chapter 43 and verses 20 and 21. These are the people that God has chosen that are going to declare the wonders of His presence. And it's not individualistic in our Western world when we see that word you. We always think that it's about us. It's about us individually, the, the single self. But Peter is writing about a corporate identity. He's referring to the church. Now there are implications for the individual. But he's talking about the the group, the gathering of God's people. And this chosen race is not about skin color, even though race 
is always about skin color when you think about it in terms of human conventional wisdom. The chosen race, biblically speaking, theologically thinking, is a new people from all of the peoples of the world, all the colors and all the cultures, who now live, each one of them, as an alien and a stranger in this world because of their faith in Christ Jesus and the impact of the Gospel in their life. What gives us our identity is not color, and it's not even our culture. It is chosenness. What gives us our identity is that God has chosen us. And it's this chosenness that connects us to Christ, because Peter is going to use the same word to describe Christ at least a couple of times prior to this. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Christ was the one that was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Two verses later in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Christ is that stone, that chosen stone. And so as a chosen race, we are, we are connected with Christ. But then number two, and this is going to verse 10, you are a recipient of mercy. Now the way that this is actually uh, worded in the original language, the word is actually the word mercy is actually a verb, and it should be read something like this: You are in your life, in your being, in your relationship with Christ. You are mercied. When God chose us, we were in our sin, in our guilt, and our condemnation. And in order to be able to choose us in that state of ugliness. God had to mercy us. We are the objects of His mercy. We are the recipients, the gifted people, blessed with His mercy. And you can remember, you know, most of the imagery that we're reading here in verses 9 and 10 come from the Old Testament. The imagery here is of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer who is rejected, but because of mercy is received again by, by uh, uh, Hosea. And in our choosing, in His choosing of us, and in His mercying of us, God does not, does not just, just intellectually choose us and then stand aloof from us. We get our identity, again, not from our, our own actions, but from the fact that we have been acted upon. We are, we are people who have received mercy. When you receive mercy in that state of, of lostness, and you understand that it's not of yourself or in yourself to be able to change any of that status whatsoever. How does it change the human heart? And how does that changing form an identity for you in the community? Well, looking at verses 9 and 10, not only are you a chosen race and a recipient of God's mercy, but you're God's possession. This, this very thing is expressed twice. In verse 9, that you are a people belonging to God. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Now being chosen by God and a recipient of His mercy, you have thus become one of His possessions. And because you are His possession and have received His mercy and have been chosen by Him, you are the one that God spends eternity with. When God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that I will be their God and they will be My people, He means I will live with them and walk among them. You are chosen. You are a recipient of mercy. You are God's possession and the one that He will walk among and reveal Himself to in a personal relationship forever. But then going again to verse 9, not only are you God's possession, but because you're God's possession, you are holy. 
You're holy. You have been chosen and received mercy and possessed by God. And therefore, you are not merely part of the world anymore. You are set apart for God. You are embraced by God. You exist for God. And since God is holy, chapter 1, verse 15, you are called to be holy as well. Going back to Leviticus chapter 19. Which means that as His people, the people that are sitting in these pews, that are part of this church, because God is holy and we are called to be holy, that means that we share His character. If you do not act and live and think and respond and react in a holy way, you're, you're, you're acting out of character. And when we understand that at the core of God, at the very essence of God is that holiness, for us to live an unholy life or to enjoy the unholy things means that we are contradicting the essence of what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Your identity is holiness to the Lord. You and me. We are holy people. And then again, going to verse 9, not only are we God's possession and holy, but we're a royal priest. The point here is not so much to talk about whether or not we need another human priest as a mediator. We don't need that. There's only one that God Himself has provided. The one mediator between God and man who is the man, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We do have direct access to God and through God. But what this means when we are called a royal priest is that we have this exalted, active role in God's presence. We are not chosen, receiving God's mercy, possessed by Him and holy in nature, just to fritter away our time in doing worthless things. In doing base things, earthly things, mundane things. We are called to minister in the presence of God. And our life is priestly service and we're never out of His presence and therefore never out of that priestly service. There's, there's never in our life this neutral zone where we are not to see ourselves and consider ourselves as a people of service, a people of priestly service in the name of God. And your life is either going to be a spiritual service of worship, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, or it is like that holiness going to be out of character. So that helps us to understand a little bit about what the Bible, at least in this one little passage, talk, uh, says and talks about and explains as a part of our identity. The next question, from whom did you receive this identity? The answer is almost too obvious. We get our identity from God. In fact, our identity is in relation to God. What did we just look at? We are chosen by God. We receive mercy from God. We are possessed by God. We are set apart as holy by God. We are made royal priests by God. So the answer to the question, how did we get this identity, is that God gave it to us by virtue of His calling us through the Gospel. And sometimes it seems so simplistic to even ask it, but ask it we must, if for no other reason than to remind us that our identity and who it is that gave, to, gave it to us, that's intrinsically linked together. I think that it's easy for the Gospel to become very man-centered. And by that, I mean, not so much that it's glorifying man, but that man-centered in the sense that our identity becomes in the way that we act out religiously. It becomes man-centered in sort of a legalistic bend. 
that I get my identity from the fact that I go to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and I go to Bible class and I read my Bible every day and I pray every day and I go to church even on Wednesday nights or that I do good deeds or that I give them my money. It becomes very man-centered rather than God-centered that we are who we are by His great grace. But the reason for that is because of the nature of the culture that we live in. And what I hope that all of us hear in this moment is that the specifically biblical angle on this question is that Christian selfhood is not defined by who we are or what we do in and of ourselves. But it comes from God. What we must constantly call to mind is that we are the product of God and not ourselves. That I am who I am because of the action of God and the, 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 the love of God that has been poured into my life. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship that He creates with us and the destiny He appoints for us. In other words, as a believer, you cannot talk about your identity without talking about the action of God on you and in you on your behalf. The biblical understanding of who you are is radically God-centered. Who am I? And where did all of this come from? We are a God-chosen, mercy-receiving, God-possessed, sanctified priest of God. And our identity is not an end in itself, but for the sake of priestly service, which Peter defines as making known God's identity. God made us who we are so that we might proclaim the excellence of His freedom in choosing us. The excellence of His grace in supplying mercy to us in our lost, lost state changes us. The excellence of His possessing us gives us a security and a confidence in this life that we've never known before. The excellence of His worth as seen in a holy lifestyle is, is salt and light and blessing in the community. In other words, God has given us our identity in order that His identity might be proclaimed through us. And not just in what we speak, but in the way that we live as the church. God made us who we are so that we could make known who He is. I've said it before, but God made us a certain kind of a human being. And as that person, our lives, sometimes the only Bible that some people will ever be able to read the meaning of our identity is that the excellence of God is seen in us. Therefore, being a Christian and living as an alien, as an exile, as a stranger on the earth, and making known the greatness of God are almost identical. We do it in our assemblies. We do it in our homes. We do it in our jobs. We do it in our neighborhoods. We do it, we do it in our workplaces. We do it in our schools. We do it wherever we are because it is precisely who we are in all of those places. And one of the ways that we declare the excellence of God is to act them out. Living that holy life. Living that holy life of living life out as a priest, of understanding what it means to be chosen and loved by God. You've never heard of the name of Doug Nichols. Going back some years, he was the director of Action International Ministries and he was making known the excellence of God, the gospel of God, in a tuberculosis sanatorium in India back in the late 1960s. It's a fantastic story that has a sad beginning. At, at some point, Doug got tuberculosis. 
was sent into the sanatorium. For the first several months, he tried to be a missionary in that place by handing out tracts and copies of the Gospel of John. But no one there in that sanatorium in India would take one of them. The others in the sanatorium didn't like him because they assumed because he was an American that he was rich. And as a rich American, he wanted nothing to do with them. At one point, though, there were were several nights where he would wake up coughing at 2 a.m. at 2 in the morning and he would notice this little old emaciated man who was trying to get out of bed. The man would try, but he couldn't stand up and he would begin to whimper and then he would lay back down into the bed. Weak. In the morning, the stench in the ward was terrible and everyone was angry at the old man for not being able to contain himself. The nurse who cleaned him up every morning even smacked him from time to time for making such a mess. The same thing happened night after night after night. Doug would wake up coughing with his own terrible sickness, his own terrible weakness. He would see the old man trying to get out of the bed. And again, the old man could not stand. He would begin to cry softly. He would lay down in the bed and everything would repeat itself. Except for one night, as one who had received mercy, And saw himself as a priest. He got out of bed and went over to the old man. The old man cowered with fear. He thought that this was just going to be more punishment, would be more brutality towards him because of his inability to contain himself because of the illness and because of the sickness and weakness. But Doug Nichols picked him up with both arms, carried him to the bathroom, which in the sanitarium was just a hole in the floor, and then brought him back. As he laid him down on the bed, the old man kissed him on the cheek. At four in the morning, another patient woke Doug with a steaming cup of tea and made motions which said that he wanted a copy of that track on the Gospel of John. And through the whole day, people kept coming to him and asking for the booklets even though they could not speak the same language. The point is, what we do is for the sake of God and making His identity known in the world. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And it's an opportunity for us to praise God for the greatness of His riches that have been bestowed and lavished upon us. But at the same time, when we draw close to God, there are times when we sense that our life is not what it ought to be. And it's not because we understand intellectually intellectually, that we're sinners. It's, it's that we understand in our heart and in our soul that our life has gotten off track someplace. That somehow it has been derailed. And that at some point we have found ourselves in a, in a, in a direction that is taking us further and further from God. And that's not a bad thing unless we don't do anything about it. During these invitations, it's an opportunity. It's an invite to do something about what's happening in your life. It's about coming back to God. It's about coming home to God. It's about coming back into His embrace. It's about declaring again the desire on our part because of that love and that mercy to live that holy life and to be His possession. And to feel that blessing surging through the veins of our our soul and changing everything about us in such a way that we can't help by the way that we speak and the way that we respond and react the situations around us and the way that we use our material goods and the way that we speak to people and the way that we just live basically our life before a watching world that we are declaring the greatness of God's gospel, His grace and His love. The way that we forgive people. The way that we minister to them as priests 
in the way that we care for them in this community and in our homes and even in our church. If that describes you this, this evening, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front and we want you to come down and talk to them about what's on your heart as we stand and praise God together. There is a name here I love to sing its words. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweet